From the United Nations in Bonn, I am Leonie Beck. And I'm Monja Sovagia. And we are the hosts of Inside UN Bonn, your podcast about the people and stories behind the United Nations in Bonn. COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference, took place a few weeks ago, where nearly 200 parties adopted the Glasgow Climate Pact. It is a wide-ranging set of decisions, resolutions and statements which constitute the outcome of intense negotiations, formal and informal work over many months and constant engagement both in person and virtually for nearly two years. As these decisions sometimes seem technical and difficult to understand, we will talk to our UNIFCCC colleague Coco Warner, who will help us understand what kind of decisions were made at COP26. Coco is the manager in the Adaptation Division at UN Climate Change and already joined us on Inside UN Bonn during COP26. Welcome back, Coco. Thanks for joining us again. Hi, Monia. It's great to see you. Great to be back in Bonn. COP26 was said to be an extremely challenging climate conference in reaching consensus among parties. Finding an agreement at a COP is always difficult, as 197 member states have to find a global compromise and agree on one final outcome. However, how was this COP more challenging than others? This COP took place in the middle of a global pandemic. Everyone is affected. The COP26 presidency made enormous efforts along with UNFCCC secretariat to keep everyone safe, to make a conference inclusive and accessible to all countries of the world who sent delegations. I think that was our 197 as well as to all of the observers who came, because inclusive multilateralism is really about including and including civil society and all of those different stakeholders. So it was definitely a challenge. On the other hand, we have some very exciting outcomes and I'd say a great success. Hard, but sometimes hard also yields really good results. So what was challenging about finding an agreement? Yeah, so in the UNFCCC, as I said, inclusive multilateralism means that what countries are trying to do is find consensus. And climate change touches every aspect of most people's lives in every country in every region of the world. And of course, countries are different. They have different populations. They're exposed to different risks, different stages of development. And that means that everyone comes with slightly different views. So just the sheer task of finding areas of agreement on such nuanced, complex issues is a Herculean leadership task. And I think what's really exciting as a secretariat person is the chance to work with dedicated leaders from all over the world and to see them struggling and just pull out all of the stops in their leadership toolbox and help countries see the long view, also make sacrifices. Everybody makes sacrifices. Really no country, I imagine probably no country or group went away totally satisfied with the outcomes. And we were all in it together. So that I think is one of the remarkable things. You can see it live, multilateralism right in front of your face. Maybe I can name a few of the big outcomes. There was progress in finance, not only in the quantity of finance, but the quality of finance, more inclusivity, lots of really important discussions about governance and rules moving forward. So that finance goal was really, really important. The complex negotiations on 
market mechanisms or carbon markets, among others, were agreed. And that was one of the outstanding issues that still hadn't been worked out under the Paris Agreement. So countries were able to conclude that. There was progress in concluding the enhanced transparency framework. And there's a lot of technical details, but transparency is really important for trust. All countries that have signed up for the Paris Agreement have agreed to voluntarily do their part to fight against the adverse impacts of climate change and make sure that it doesn't get to a dangerous stage. But every country is a little bit different. That requires trust and transparency. So there was progress there. I could name a half dozen other really big and important outcomes. Those are maybe three. But I think everyone went away with a substantial amount of work to do ahead. Yeah, you already mentioned finance. Ministers also agreed that developed countries should urgently deliver more resources to help climate vulnerable countries to the dangerous and costly consequences of climate change that they are already feeling today. Can you give us an example for what purposes these resources are necessary? Yeah, absolutely. And finance kind of goes across several different big activity areas And all of that finance goes towards literally building a brighter, safer, more stable future for all countries. Some of the finance goes towards infrastructure, energy infrastructure, for example. Some of it goes into areas like training farmers and restoring soils and restoring forests. Also really important for pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. Some of the finance needs to go into helping countries adjust their economies and where people live and how people work. We call that adaptation and resilience building. Imagine that you're a small island development state out in the Pacific, very low-lying. A lot of these countries are really, really vulnerable to sea level rise. And those countries are looking for finance, capacity, technology that will help them chart a safe, stable future where all of their populations you know, have a really good future. And there are lots and lots of things to do. Fisheries, agriculture, ensuring clean, safe water. I could just go on and on. The need for finance is great. And the opportunity, like I said, to build that safe, stable, good future for people and countries is very compelling. And that's where climate finance is headed towards, to facilitating that good future. So a very complex topic, as I hear. Absolutely. Beyond the Glasgow Climate Pact, at COP26, countries also made collective commitments to curb methane emissions, to halt and reverse forest loss, and align with the finance sector with a net zero for 2050, to name just a few. Did these commitments come as a surprise to you? There were a couple of things. Our UNFCCC climate negotiations process brings countries together and their formal negotiations on agenda items and their milestones stretching out into this decade. But at the margins, because countries were coming together and many other important stakeholders, the finance sector, agricultural sector, forestry sector, just to name half, you know, there are so many to name, their partnerships came together and made their own commitments. So not only at the core of it did you have countries looking for consensus on these very tough issues about how to navigate climate change, 
at the margins, you had dozens and dozens of countries, in some cases, including the private sector and other actors, saying, hey, not only are we going to find agreements and consensus in the UNFCCC process, as long as we're together, let's make progress in protecting our forests. Let's make commitments, even if it's multilateral or bilateral, to reduce our methane. Let's get as much out of this as we can. And so I think that was almost the flywheel effect of the international climate negotiations. I would say tremendously successful, but of course, success will be measured by the results we get in the future. So we have a lot of work ahead. Yeah, already talking about a lot of work ahead. Under last minute pressure, the wording in the Glasgow Climate Pact changed from phasing out coal to phasing down coal. Does a change of one or two words really matter? It does. And that is the hard part as well as the promise of this multilateral negotiations process. Phasing out coal means one thing. It means that by a certain date, countries might commit to completely change their energy systems. And we know from the best available science, including the literature synthesized by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that by a certain time in the next decades, the world's economies need to move away from fossil fuels. Fossil fuel emissions are one of the main drivers of anthropogenic climate change. And phasing out coal would have been a major hope for humanity. That said, phasing down coal is better than nothing at all. And some of the countries that advocated for that position, you can also understand where they're coming from. They're developing countries. They have people to feed. In the midst of a pandemic, there are blackouts. They're not able to provide energy for their citizens. And that's the push and pull of the negotiations. And compromise is what we have to do in order to make progress. And you heard that in the final plenary. A lot of countries expressed disappointment about that. And yet they've recognized this is not the end. This is a step. We'll continue in just a few weeks. We'll pick up the next steps and keep going forward in 2022. Another topic that was very prominent in the last day or in the last hours was that we heard a lot about Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. Countries were finally able to reach this agreement. Why are market mechanisms important to reach the emission reduction targets? Can you explain this a bit further? Yeah, so the purpose of the Paris Agreement is ultimately to help the world's economies, all of the different countries, all of the different stakeholders stabilize greenhouse gas emissions at a level that is well below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And today, science estimates that we're probably already at about 1.2 degrees Celsius above. So we're well on our way. There are no safeguards. There are no you know, safety rails for the planet. But science does suggest that some biomes like coral reefs might actually become irreparably damaged and, and start disappearing after certain points, like 1.2 is, is the approximate threshold for coral reefs. So then the question is, how do countries reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and how did they do that in a coordinated way? One way is through markets. And so one of the things that countries have been talking about for many years since the Paris Agreement five or six years ago is could they use markets to put a price on carbon and trade that? It's a very technical discussion, but finally countries were able to agree on rules for market-based mechanisms, 
And that from a process perspective is a lot of progress. And having those rules is important for markets because it sends a signal about how not only countries can plan and coordinate their energy production and consumption, but it also sends signals to finance, to pension houses, to investors all throughout the economy. So having those kind of clear playing fields is a step forward for all players involved. And you already mentioned that a few countries were frustrated with the process or the final result. The Secretary General Antonio Guterres also commented on the final agreement of COP26. And I quote here, the texts take important steps, but unfortunately the collective political will was not enough to overcome some deep contradictions. What are other steps that are necessary? Yeah, well, first of all, and this is really unsatisfactory for youth and for the many communities who are on the front lines of climate change. But the answer to that is come back to the table and keep working because every country, every community has different interests and climate change is a shared concern for humanity. I don't know of a single country, a single sector that can combat climate change and build a bright and better future for all of us on this planet alone. And that's the purpose of inclusive multilateralism. And so we have the UNFCCC process. It's not perfect. I think all of us struggle with it, but this process brings together parties. Those are countries and non-party stakeholders. That's everybody else to keep working out, to keep building consensus, to keep finding areas for cooperation. And that It's not magic. It's really hard work and it happens week in, week out, quarter by quarter, step by step. We're already looking towards COP27 in Egypt and beyond. We have just step by step working together. And happily, we have a process, not perfect, but we have a process that keeps bringing us back to the table. Thank you so much for joining us again here in Bonn, Coco. It has been so interesting talking to you and learning more about how the UNFCCC process works and what the 197 member states agreed on during COP26. So thank you. It has been a real pleasure. The UN Climate Change Conference takes place every year in a different country. In 2017, COP23 took place in Bonn and the Bonn-based Beethoven Orchestra played the Pastoral Symphony, Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, in front of the COP participants. Since then, the Beethoven Orchestra has become the first ever United Nations Climate Change Goodwill Ambassador. So our second guest today is Dia Kaftan, the conductor of the Beethoven Orchestra. Hello, Mr. Kaftan. It's almost Christmas, so the perfect season to go and see a classical concert, if COVID-19 allows it, of course. So you must be very busy right now. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. You're very welcome. Can you tell us a bit more about your background and how you became the conductor of the Beethoven Orchestra? Well, I've been doing music all of my life. I grew up in the countryside, almost on a little farm where music was part of life. And more and more, I developed the wish to do this as a profession. So I started to work at a theater in the city of Trier as a piano player to study the parts with the singers for staging and so on. So I became a conductor and worked in a few places. My last place was the Opera House of Graz in Austria. It's the second biggest opera house of Austria. And from there I came to Bonn 2017 in preparation of the big Beethoven Jubilee to yeah, become the chief conductor of the Beethoven Orchestra here in Bonn. Last year, the Beethoven Orchestra became the goodwill ambassador of UN Climate Change. 
This is historic in two ways. First, UN Climate Change has never had a goodwill ambassador before. And secondly, it is the first time ever that an orchestra became a UN goodwill ambassador. How can music contribute to combating climate change? Well, first of all, music is always a measure to connect people without words all over the world. In terms of climate change, we want to be part of the power who creates a mainstream movement. So we give people power, we give people ideas, we give people yeah, many associations with nature, human life. What does human life mean? I mean, music is always kind of a reflection. It's a mirror in which we look and where we see the depth of our soul. And I think this mirror can be very helpful to um, not to solve the problems, but to make people able to solve challenges that we face in the future. And what is your role as the UN Goodwill Ambassador of UN Climate Change? Well, right now we, we work on certain concepts. The first thing, of course, is that we start with ourselves. We try to be very aware of our daily life. What can we contribute to be aware of the balance between our life and the wellness of nature? Then in a second column, we try to support and create certain projects such as a forest project in Madagascar where the woods are grown to build valuable instruments and of course some projects here we we try to support people who try to yeah create an awareness of the situation of our forests of our nature of our problems we have here and third of all and that's the thing that's of most interest to the United Nations I think the idea of communication so we try to communicate with our programs by our programs and at the places where we play the goals of the United Nations, not in a way of being a teacher and teaching many peoples, but it's important to play this game in a joyful way to show people how wonderful the world is, how much it's worth to preserve these things and how you can connect to the uh, very distinct ideas of the United Nations. Yeah, that's great. And how about your orchestra? How do you aim to be sustainable on location yourselves? You mean in daily work? Well, there are, of course, small steps to be taken, such as the question of mobility. So we try to make some research programs. How does the public come to our concerts? How do our musicians go to the rehearsal? How do they come to work? So we try to uh, find concepts, how we can be part of the movement to a more green mobile society i think that's one of the main issues and then of course there are many other small steps concerning the buildings we're playing at concerning our tours we cannot just stop touring but we can look at touring and then we want to look at the artists we engage to give concerts with us where do they come from is it necessary to make a big trip for this concert or are there possibilities maybe to find some other solutions i think the future will be to think a little more local and to think a little more long-term engagement. So an artist who comes here does maybe not just play one concert, but works here for a week with young people and so on. So there are many, many little tools in daily life we want to have a look at. Okay. And before you mentioned a project in Madagascar that you support, could you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yeah, it's a collaboration with an initiative called Ebenholz. It was founded by some instrument builders here in Germany. And we try to support certain part of Madagascar to support sustainable forestry. And of course, our instruments are partly several hundred years old and are not created in sustainable ways. There was a lot of abolition in these days. And to make valuable woodwork available in the future, it's necessary to create sustainable forestry. And in connection with this program, the people who work there, their children get an education, they get a fair fee. So we try to be yeah, just a part of this movement. That sounds very interesting. You are, of course, the head of the Beethoven Orchestra. Beethoven was a lover of nature. He would often go on walks along the Rhine, right here in Bonn, or later he went hiking when he lived in Austria. How did he express his love of nature in his music? Well, first of all, Beethoven tried to find some balance for himself on his walks. <laughs> But we have to admit, he did not seek the wild nature. You would not do this in these times. He was walking on paths. He was walking on the edge between civilization and the wild forest. So, of course, the most obvious work that deals with nature is the Pastoral Symphony. But the Pastoral Symphony is not just a picture of nature. Beethoven, it was very important for him to have this understanding. But it's kind of a dialogue between man and nature. How does nature affect us and how do we affect nature? In the moment you have a look at nature, it's already an interference with nature. And so the Pastoral Symphony is a very complex work. Of course, in the first movement, it has a lot to do with losing our feeling of time. He works with repetitions, which was very unusual in this time. It sounds almost like minimal music in some moments. And then it becomes more and more interesting. The scene at the river is a scene between two people, of course. How does nature affect two lovers? And then it becomes more and more serious. We come to the countryside and on the countryside we find the thunderstorm and this thunderstorm breaks in the country dance and what was very interesting in this time this music uh, Beethoven describes the thunderstorm with contains revolutionary music from the French Revolution so it was not just bam a big thunder it would have been very easy to compose that but it was more it's like the thunderstorm in our society he was trying to show us and when the thunderstorm is over there's playing a tune that was known very well by the people that time that was a tune of the so-called Alphorn, the Kuhreigen. This tune was played in Switzerland when the weather was fine again. So the people who listened to this in Vienna would not only notice, oh, it's peace and the bad weather is over, they would also hear, oh, this is Switzerland and Switzerland is the fight for freedom. So Beethoven connects in every moment Moments from nature to our society, to our mankind, to conflict between mankind, civilization and nature. So that's indeed very, very modern and interesting. As you mentioned, the theme of nature, as well as many other themes, is particularly prominent in his sixth symphony, the Pastoral. It features birdsong played by flutes and thunder evoked by cello and bass. In 2020, to honor Beethoven's 250th birthday, The Pastoral Symphony was performed around the world, including on June 5th, the UN World Environment Day. Did you also highlight the pastoral in your concerts this past year? 
Yes, of course, we joined that day, but that day was part of the lockdown, so there was no concert. I don't think there was a concert hardly anywhere. But we recorded the Sixth Symphony in a Corona version. We had musicians playing with long distance. The winds were playing outside, the string was playing inside, and we made quite a special stream out of this Sixth Symphony to be part of this big day. Well, that's quite a special Corona edition. It must be quite unique for a conductor to play a composer's music in a venue just a few minutes walking distance from where the composer used to live hundreds of years ago. We checked and it's actually only eight minutes to walk from Beethoven's birthplace and family home to Bond's opera house. What is it like to play his music in the city that he grew up in? Oh, that's of course very inspiring. Beethoven, when he lived in Bonn, was a young man. So where he got all his ideas, that was the Bonn society. And it was a very modern society, free-thinking society here in Bonn that times. And Bonn had one of the best orchestras in the world. Beethoven was part of this orchestra. And, of course, it's a gift to have this Beethoven house with all the fine specialists and scientists who work on Beethoven all their lives. So every little question can be answered, plus this inspiring feeling. We live at the place where Beethoven became a grown-up man. You should not forget, when he came to Vienna, he was a grown-up man. And there's a lot to discover about this time here in Bonn. So we tried to make this research project. We found the music Beethoven played himself in his orchestra. It was lying in a cellar in Modena. Never played again since the time Beethoven played it. And so part by part we tried to restore this music and record it, make it available to the audience. So there are many little things that have to do with Beethoven House, as you explained. So not just the building and the feeling but also facts. That's wonderful. We will definitely think of that when we pass it in the future. Nature is a common theme in classical music. Why do you think other composers were inspired by it as well? Well, music always deals with the big questions of human life. Of course, in different times of history, nature was more or less important in arts or meant different things concerning arts. In the Romantic time, of course, nature had a very special impulse, a very special effect to every artist in this time. And I think our view of nature still is a little romantic in many moments of art. In these times now, I think we face a different challenge to reflect even more what impact our life has on nature and how we can find a way to find a balanced existence between a sustained nature and a modern life. So I think even in arts, the reflection of nature runs through a certain change right now. Due to COVID-19, you had to cancel several concerts and other events. What kind of events will the Beethoven Orchestra do in the future in its role as the Goodwill Ambassador? 
Well, we are planning or have already planned many concerts that deal with the topic of being the climate ambassador. We started with First Symphony of Gustav Mahler, connected to a piece by an Icelandic composer, Anna Torvaldsdottir. And we try to talk about this on stage with certain specialists we invite. Here was a plan to talk to Eckart von Hirschhausen to ask the question, what was Mahler's idea of man-nature? The question you asked before, what's behind that? What's behind the notes that try to tell us something about man and nature? So this is part of becoming more aware about the theme. Then we have other concerts like the Alpen Symphony by Richard Strauss. And we have a, created a new format. It's called Im Spiegel, in the mirror, where we invite Reinhold Messner, who is one of the great mountaineers. He will talk about his experiences in the mountains. He's also a very strong activist against climate change. So we will connect the work of Strauss with these modern aspects of our life. And then there are many, many other little projects that try to find a joyful way to deal with this. Our musicians invented an own idea of playing in the forest, having a hike concert where you can explore music in the forest and contribute to a foundation by doing so. What are your plans specifically with you and climate change? I heard that maybe there might be a concert on the campus. Yeah, of course, we try to connect more with the actual people who work here for the United Nations. So there are plans of doing a concert series on the UN campus, combining music and talk, combining music with meeting people. And we would love to open this not only for the people who work for the UN, but also for the people who live in Bonn and are interested to meet. So there are many plans to connect the two societies and yeah, grow a stronger force here in Bonn. That sounds very interesting and I really hope that this can happen in the coming year. I really look forward to attending one of your concerts on our campus. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It was a pleasure for me as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Inside UN Bonn. The music is by Tim Moore and the design and visualizations of the podcast were done by me, Monja Sovagea. Thank you to the German Ministry of Foreign Affairs for their generous financial support in making this podcast happen. We will be back soon with more human stories from the people behind UN Bonn. To find out more about UN Bonn's 25th anniversary and the stories behind UN Bonn, please visit www.unbonn.org. On Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, we are at UN Bonn. Please take the time to review us because it does make a difference. Until next time.